1: We had the Supreme Court, we had Roe v. Wade. It wasn't the perfect decision, but it was a good one. It was one that put the decision-making levers in the hands of women themselves. It's gone now, but... The Conservatives who are anti-abortion might just be very surprised that when people do make a decision that they can decide that the conscience or the freedom for someone to make a decision about their own bodies and their own lives should rest in the hands of the people who face that consequence. So let's go out there and argue as opposed to expecting to receive a right from on high.
2: Hello, and welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guests for this week, Anne Faraday and John O'Brien. Anne and John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. Thanks. It's a pleasure to have you both. I think listeners will already know why I've got you guys on. It's because I want to talk about Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade and what this means why it's a bad thing and how we should be thinking about this. Uh, And for that discussion, I wanted two people who have really been at the coalface of making the case for a woman's right to choose. And of course, there are no two better people than John and Anne to talk about these issues. And to kick it off, I want to just talk about what has actually happened because there is so much rancor on this issue, so much tension that there is even disagreement over what has happened in the US. So some people will say abortion's been banned, it's been criminalized, and other people will say that hasn't happened at all. Some people say this is a grave assault on liberty. Others say, actually, it's an expansion of democracy because the issue has been thrown back to the States where people will be able to make their own laws. So there is, even on the question of what has actually taken place in the United States, there is a lot of disagreement. So, John, you worked in the US for a long time on this issue. You were with Catholics for Choice for more than 25 years, I think. So you know the ins and outs of the American position on abortion and what the right to choose means in that country. So to kick us off, could you just outline what you think has happened with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and why this is something we should all be thinking about?
1: Yeah, thanks, Brendan. And uh, it's good to talk to you from Washington, D.C. Um, Roe v. Wade was a landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in which the court ruled that the constitution of the United States generally protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion. The decision struck down many federal and state abortion laws. And rather than, you know, sort of solving the issue, it actually fueled an ongoing abortion debate here in the United States, whether or to what extent abortion should be legal who should decide the legality of abortion, and what role moral and religious views play in the political sphere. So this 1973 decision was struck down this week by the Supreme Court. It's left a patchwork of laws in the United States. So 13 states have trigger laws on the books, which will basically really restrict or ban abortion in those states. Justice Alito, um, what he said in writing the decision was that Roe was wrong from the start. Um, We need a return to the Constitution. And Roe goes back then to elected representatives to decide what to do with it. That's basically what Justice Alito said in the decision. So Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. In those states, it's going to be next to impossible to obtain an abortion. Anti-abortion advocates are pressing the states to ban abortion uh, once the heartbeat is detected, sort of within six weeks of pregnancy. States with a right to abortion, and there's nine states, Alaska, California, Illinois, Kansas, uh, Minnesota, Montana, and New Jersey—they're the states in which people can still get uh, abortion. So, abortion is available in the United States mm-hmm. in certain states, but that's sort of very difficult. If you're a poor working-class person um, and you're working two two jobs to to make a living, it's it's next to impossible to be able to take that time off work and travel. Uh, the long, long distances. We're we're a huge country, mm. so to travel the long distances to a state where it's legal is really, really difficult. So for many poor folks, um, abortion is going to be very difficult to obtain.
2: That's a, a really useful overview of what's happened and and where it will impact most harshly and who it will impact most harshly on. That's that's really useful. And I actually saw something on Instagram where someone was saying, "Look." if you're in a state like Texas, for example, and it's difficult to get an abortion, you can always go to another state. And then someone pointed out that Texas is about the size of half of Europe and it would be like traveling from London to Rome or something. I mean, it is insane distances and uh, obviously a grave uh, restriction of people's ability to choose what they want to do for themselves where they live. Um, And I want to, John raised something very interesting there at the beginning of what he was saying in terms of Roe not actually resolving the issue of abortion or the question of abortion. And in fact, it gave rise to a lot of tension, a lot of disagreement on this issue of abortion. And that's something I wanted to ask you about as we kind of start to dig down into what's happened in the US. Because there is, there has been um, some feeling, even among feminists, even among those who are pro-choice, that Roe was not good enough. And even uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was obviously a, a very strong advocate for a woman's right to choose, would often make the point that Roe didn't quite resolve the issue. And because it was about privacy, it, it left the moral question of whether it's right to end a pregnancy and whether it's right for a woman to govern her whole body as she sees fit. It left those broader moral questions unresolved and running through society and creating all sorts of tension. Now you've written, including for Spike, that actually the privacy point was a very important one. So I wanted to put it to you, John's outlined very well there what the uh, overturning of Roe, what impact it will have. But I want to go back to the question of whether Roe was sufficient in itself. So Anne, how do you feel about that? The question of whether Roe v. Wade resolved the abortion issue or actually in in some strange way intensified the divisions around it
0: well i i think it's a you know it's one of those things that it was both good and it had problems Mm. to it i mean i think it's never good when you get a nation's laws sort of fundamental laws really being determined by a bunch of judges And there is something in people's arguments that in going to the states, what you can have is a much more democratic discussion rather than um, decisions that are made by, by judges. But I think that... The arguments against Roe and some of the pushback against Roe that have been happening recently have not really been about the principle about whether it's it, it it's democratic or not. Um, quite a lot of the pushback has been about the thing that I think was actually a brilliant thing um, in the Roe versus Wade discussion, which was. A defining of a woman's uh, reproductive state, her own body, whether she was going to have a baby from a pregnancy or end that pregnancy, that was something that was private and her own and not something that the state could impinge on. And that was really the ruling that Roe v. Wade made. And I think that we misunderstand that a lot in Europe, because we tend to think of private as being something like, well, it's private, it's yours, you don't tell people. But I think when we look at it in this legal sense, we need to understand that what it was saying when it was basically saying a woman's decision about her pregnancy was a private decision, it basically means it's not for the state to intervene in it. That private sphere is that state that is that, that place in your life that the state cannot intrude upon. And that's very important because it's basically saying the number of children that you have, how you use contraception, whether or not you have an abortion, the state has no say in that. Now, where that was always a problem some people have said that this was a, a a big problem with that decision is that it doesn't address the money side it doesn't mm-hmm. address who pays for the abortion and in fact, some smart critics have said for a while now that a problem with Roe v. Wade is that it addressed your individual right to have an abortion, but it didn't give you any help at all in providing resources to enable you to do that. And you have to remember as well, this is the US, and John might want to say more about how healthcare is there, but in Britain, we've got an NHS that pays for your abortion. There, you don't. So some people said it gave a kind of empty right. Personally, I don't think that's true. I think it was hugely important. And even for people who are too poor, the fact that the right exists, enables it gives them something. It gives them something that they can have if they can scrape the money together. I think that point
2: about privacy is really important and particularly about the misunderstanding of it in so much contemporary discussion as something you keep to yourself or maybe something that's secret something that might be a bit shameful or your own tiny little universe in which you do all the things you want to do whereas in fact the right to privacy traditionally and still today i wish should have a far broader meaning which is the right of the individual to self-government to taking responsibility for the decisions that they make and to live freely uh, within the law without the state poking its nose in so I always thought, and and your writing on this, Anne, really helped me to understand this in relation to Roe v. Wade, which is that the privacy point, it it may not have explicitly said that abortion is okay and and, uh, we don't have a moral problem with a woman's decision to end a pregnancy, but it did emphasise the right of an individual, sentient, uh, autonomous human being to make choices for themselves and to live with the consequences, which is very positive. And, And John, I wanted to touch on that with you before we move on to uh, lots of other questions. But in relation to the privacy point, I wonder what impact the undermining of Roe will have in relation to that, because it strikes me that some of it could be pretty terrifying because, you know, what what will happen now? Will, will women of childbearing age have their health needs more closely monitored? If a woman of a certain age decides to travel from one state to another... Will that raise alarm bells in the way that it might not not have done in the past? Uh, If a woman gets pregnant, how is the state going to find out? If she goes to a clinic to have an abortion, how is the state going to find out? So I think the, the overturning of Roe raises huge questions about how women live day to day and their right to do what they want without the state interfering. So in terms of the privacy point, the overturning of Roe, what impact do you think that will have on women's right to go about their lives without interference from outside.
1: Yeah, it it certainly raises a very dystopian type of mm. mindset that this undermining of a basic right that people would presume is there and a freedom that's there seems to have been destroyed or seriously questioned. And I think that that is frightening. And you, you see that sort of, if you check into Twitter or anywhere else, you see sort of the a general sort of panic about does this mean that the policing of women's bodies will be taken to an extreme? I remember being from the Republic of Ireland after the X case, um, right. and when um, the courts in Ireland decided that this a, a young girl who found herself pregnant as a result of sexual assault, people were asking the question: Well, would it mean that you know, at the you know, you'd need to have a negative pregnancy test? in order to be able to travel because the state was going to intervene. And the the fear that that type of extremism um, can happen in those states that I outlined earlier in the United States, Um, for example, that pills by post, people say, well, there's no problem. You can get pills Mm. that you can have um, a termination of pregnancy by taking pills. But there's a possibility that, as happened in Ireland, that the state is going to begin to check people's mail and to confiscate, um, indeed even prosecute, people who would be trying to get pills by post. Um, the anti-abortion advocates are pressing states to ban abortion once, you have, once a heartbeat is detected. So that's going to rule out abortion in, in a lot of those cases. But there's also a question about whether certain forms of contraception would be banned. There's also a question about even assisted reproduction. Mm-hmm. Assisted reproduction could be banned. You know, that happened in Costa Rica when you had anti-abortion extremists um, controlling the Legislative Assembly in in Puerto Rico. So assisted reproduction could be banned in many states. And even homosexuality and gay rights um, is really in question because if you remove Mm. that right to privacy, um, you know, various questions about gay marriage or gay rights are also going to be questioned as well. So I think we are looking at a very serious, and and I don't like to go to the, Oh, the sky is 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 falling mm. in. But I do think that the decision opened up a serious avenue for those who want to be extremists in conservative lawmaking. And it's it, one of the things that really surprises me, Brendan, is that if you look at the comments section on Spike, for example, mm. many people who would be sort of very libertarian or sort of freedom-loving people um, about sort of many issues. Um, seem to, when there's an article by Anne, for example, seem to comment very negatively on the idea of abortion. The idea that they're sanctioning the state to actually control individuals' right to freedom, decision-making, conscience, and autonomy Mm -hmm. um, is very disturbing. And I think that's the, the, the part of it that, for me, is really concerning, that we're not just talking about abortion. We're talking about people's right to decide about their own fates, their own future, and their own beliefs.
2: Well, John, you you just preempted exactly a question I was going to put to <laughs> Anne. So that's incredibly helpful. Which is that, well, I guess I want to before we move on. I, I guess we should outline why we think it's important to be pro-choice. And John, you've just done that there in terms of uh, an individual's right to uh, have freedom over themselves and to make their own choices. But Anne, I want to put that to you as well, because uh, you were the chief exec at the British Pregnancy Advisory Service for a long time. You've been at the forefront of abortion provision and abortion rights advocacy in the UK, much as John has in the US. And John raises a really Im- important point there which is that uh, I I often get people who will be surprised to find that I am pro choice and I'm always surprised that they are surprised because I yeah. think to myself hold on pretty much all I write about is the question of freedom and autonomy and yeah. the right of people uh, to to make their own decisions and to be treated as serious autonomous adults who 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 must be free to act on their conscience and yet, when it comes to abortion, lots of the people who would agree with me on some of those fundamentals suddenly throw their hands in the air and say, I can't believe you take this position. Now, I know that there is a mm-hmm. bit of a difference between exercising your freedom of speech and exercising your right to terminate a pregnancy. You know, we we know that there is there's a difference between those things. And Anne, you've written about this at length, which is that Exercising your right to terminate a pregnancy that you do not want will involve ending a potential human life, so it's it's a different moral question, and I think we all appreciate that and 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 accept that. But Anne, just to on that issue, could you just explain why you think it's important to be pro-choice, and maybe a little bit on why you think other people are often surprised to find that people like us are pro-choice.
0: Well, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because John and I often laugh about this because we've been working together for, what, more than 30 years, I think. And it was strange because, John, it was coming from an organisation that was primarily a Catholic organisation. I'm coming from uh, an Mm organisation that provides abortions. And yet we've always been able to agree on one thing above all else. And that is that when you look at the issue of abortion, the the most fundamental issue is who decides, Mm. who makes the decision about whether or not that pregnancy is going to continue into a baby and be born, or whether a woman is going to be able to end it. And I think that it's like, you know, you can't put the clock back, you can't make someone Unpregnant again, there's no guessing away from from the fact that a decision needs to be made and so and so the issue comes down to well, who is the best person to make that decision now, I feel, and I think John feels this way as as well that the best person to make that decision is the person who will live with the consequences of it and and and, and that is the woman. And it's not just a question; it gets posed as a as a kind of a right thing, as though you know we talk about the right to vote and the right to do this, that, and the other. But you know there's a massive responsibility in that as well. who is actually taking the responsibility not just for a child if it's going to be born, but also the responsibility? For making that decision, which I think most people do feel is a, is a moral decision. And, you know, it's a, it, it, somebody has to do it. And I think the, the, the only person who's really in a position who can make a really nuanced judgment about the rightness or wrongness of an abortion procedure is the woman who is pregnant. The, the doctor has to make a choice as well you know, whether or not they're going to be prepared to be involved in it. But largely it comes down to it. And When you were saying earlier about Roe v. Wade, you know, you were saying that, well, it didn't resolve all of the problems about abortion. That moral question, by which really I mean, is it right or is it wrong, you know, that that decision is being made and also the outcome of of that decision. I don't think that it's something that can be resolved Mm. in law. It's something that comes down to the individual's conscience, their decision-making ability. And people think weirdly, well, maybe it's not weird, but people think about conscience as being, oh, well, that's a very religious sort of a thing. Like people think about the word moral as being a bit right-wing and conservative, that's a bit of a thing. But actually, I think those things are as important to those of us who don't have a particular faith. Hmm. And and it it's not even a right-left thing. I think finally, just the thing that, you know, I'll tag on, you might want to pick it up later, Brendan, but, you know, Abortion for a lot of people, and I think this is where some of the hostility comes from, is that people say, oh, abortion, that, you know, arrow to feminism, to identity politics, to all of this radical progression stuff. And women who have abortions are not doing so because Of an expression of their identity. It's not like, you know, trans surgery or hormone treatment because you feel like you're a different person. People have abortions because they have an unwanted pregnancy. And whether they're pro choice, they might even be against choice, they might be a Republican, a conservative, they might be trans, whatever. But the abortion is not about identity. It's about a solution to a very practical problem. And I think people forget that. They think it's identity politics and you can sweep it away. And that's not the case. If you're a regular listener to
2: this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spike Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spike supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spike supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse this is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone anywhere can read us and listen to us we're incredibly grateful for your generosity if you don't give to spike yet now is the perfect time to start just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike Supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. You mentioned there a word that I wanted to ask you guys about, which is conscience and what that means for us. And you've outlined some of that there, Anne, but John, I want to put it to you as well. You, you uh, When you were at Catholics for Choice, you edited, edited a magazine called Conscience, which was a very fine magazine, which I was very privileged to contribute to every now and then, and I've heard you speak about how important conscience is, and it raises it, it, engaging with the work of of you two in particular, but others as well. I've often thought that there there is sometimes a lot of defensiveness in the pro-choice lobby, and I want to get onto that in in a bit more depth in a moment, but it it can often seem like. Abortion is something you have to defend in a slightly apologetic way. You know, and and famously, people will say it should be rare and safe and legal. It shouldn't happen very often. And it's something to be slightly embarrassed about. Now, I think most people would agree that, you know, these kinds of things shouldn't happen very often. And if there are other ways to avoid getting pregnant, that's great. That's wonderful. And people should have access to those methods as freely as they can. But, John, isn't there something? positive to defend in the idea of the right to choice and possibly a necessity to move away from a slight defensiveness towards articulating the uh, incredible importance of people's freedom to act on their conscience. And to abide by the decisions they make, because as Anne says, they are the people who are going to have to live with the consequences of the of the moral choices that they make in their lives. There's something in that that could be put far more positively, I think, than some people on the pro-choice side sometimes do.
1: Yeah, I, I,
2: I sort of one of the things that sort of pains me a little bit is that
1: I really look at abortion as being one of the things that um, are very private to mm. an individual. And it really is sort of your business. Um, and for yeah. women, it's uh, your business and your body. And the idea of other people being involved or having an opinion about it, except for the doctor who may be involved in helping you, seems to be hugely inappropriate. So I really wish that it was left to being sort of it's a medical issue and your medical issues or decisions should be yours alone, maybe with a partner, um, but certainly um, if a doctor's involved and it should be left there. So the idea of it sort of expanding to this sphere where we're all going to go and vote now, whether you can do that or not, Mm. strikes me as being in one way, hugely inappropriate and people's lack of generosity, sometimes um, lack of understanding, lack of tolerance to the fact that someone else might feel differently about it is really disturbing the idea that, well, we don't want abortion here. Like we, it doesn't really come into it. It really should be down to that individual, their decision making, their conscience. As Anne says, they make a decision. You, you, you live with your decision, rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. So it disturbs me in one way that things will be decided by you know a vote of the people. Um, because it's very much your body, your decision. On the other hand, I really felt that in Ireland, I was happy that the European court was not the one to make a decision Mm -hmm. about what people in Ireland would do or not do in relation to abortion. I was glad that the people were trusted. And I was glad that the decision came out as it did, one that many people that I spoke to in Ireland, I'm from Ireland, many people I spoke to said to me, I'd never have an abortion. I don't agree with it. But I voted in favor of people being able to exercise that because I am not in that position and I'll never be in that position or I hope I'll never be in that position. But people should be able to make that decision for themselves. So there was a generosity, I think, on behalf of people in the Republic of Ireland to extend to other people a trust that, yeah, you should be able to make that decision for yourself. And I think that that's a positive aspect of... Um, what can happen in the United States, that yeah, at the end of the day, okay, this Supreme Court that's become increasingly politicized, whether it's on the right or on the left, it's increasingly less about some judicial fairness and much more about which party is in power to put in their people who are going to push the agenda in this direction or that direction. Hmm. So the idea of it going to the people in these states that I've outlined earlier on, there's something about that that I believe is better than having some overseer decide this is um, right for conscience. This is not right for conscience. There's something that's better about it going to the people to decide. So there's an aspect of it to the pro-choice community. Yeah, okay. Um, We had the Supreme Court, we had Roe v. Wade, which I thought, as Anne, it wasn't a perfect decision, but it was a good one. It was one that put uh, the decision-making levers in the hands of women themselves. And I thought that was a good thing. It's gone now, but I'm excited about the idea of, like in Ireland... The conservatives who are anti abortion might just be very surprised that when people do make a decision, that they can make a decision in generosity towards other citizens and they can decide that the conscience or the freedom for someone to make a decision about their own bodies and their own lives should rest in the hands of the people who face that consequence. So I think that that's a good thing. And I think it's one that the pro choice community should be taking up with vigor as being, yeah, let's go out there and argue. As opposed to expecting to receive a right
2: from on high. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really well put. And I, uh, before we move on to some other things, Anne, I just want to put that to mm-hmm. you in, in just to come back to the the democracy issue for a moment. And uh, I was in Ireland at the time of the abortion referendum, and I was completely. it it, it is alongside Brexit. It is without question, the most democratically Mm -hmm. engaged moment I've ever experienced. I mean, there were yes and no placards on every lamppost, on every street. This goes from Dublin through to the rural west of Ireland. I was in both of those places. And uh, huge amounts of engagement, um, discussions everywhere. Everywhere you went, people were talking about it. People were wearing the yes or no badges. People would stop you in the street if you had a yes badge on, which I did so it was incredibly engaged and what i thought was important about it and and i want to to put this to you, is is not that i is not that i wanted to overly politicize the issue of abortion which i do think has to be fundamentally a private decision that the individual herself makes and then lives with But it was a way of fortifying that right. Uh, If you know that that this particular freedom, this particular ability of women to do a a certain thing is controversial, and in Ireland it was historically very, very controversial indeed, that one way to really fortify it is to have that discussion in public, get the people on your side, and then uh, push forward the argument from there. So Anne, I I, I guess my question for you is... Do we want to politicize abortion or do we want to unpoliticize abortion? Because I'm, I'm really torn on this issue because part of me agrees with exactly with what John has just said, which is let's get it to the people, win the argument and then say, there you go. This is our right. Don't touch it. it it's supported and it's popular. Or do we want to say abortion should not be in the realm of politics? There shouldn't be laws on abortion. It should be something that is a private decision. So. And how do you balance those two things out?
0: I think it's really fascinating. It's a really good question. And I think that the way that I see it working in my own mind is, well, it's a little bit like when, when I was at BPAS, one of the things that I thought was really brilliant about my job was that I got the opportunity to both work with women who were actually having abortions and doctors who were providing them and use that experience of provision and of patience to really talk with people about, in the political sphere, about why abortion was personally necessary and why it needed to be a personal choice. And I think that that's the thing that we get. We, we get the opportunity through the political debate to talk about the personal and the area that, as John put it really, really well, you know, you can be against abortion, but you need to be able to tolerate somebody else making a decision about their body that you wouldn't maybe make for yourself, you know. And I I, I think that it gives us the opportunity to to bring home what it means in real life, because that's the, the the fascinating thing about abortion as an issue. You know, it exists on a philosophical level, on the meaning of life. There's the political things about the role of women in society and all of that. But at the end of the day, it really comes back to a matter of personal choices. And it just seems to me that fundamental principle of enabling people to decide for themselves what they think, and how they're going to live their lives personally, whether Mm. it's perfect or not. But, you know, I actually think it could be a real turning point for the pro-choice movement, Mm. that it has to do that, because one of the things that is driving me slowly insane, when I look at the websites and the articles and the Twitter accounts and so on, by the kind of, you know, people who are opposing the anti-choice movement, is how they almost seem to be having increasingly a conversation between themselves about abortion politics and one that becomes more kind of in the Washington, D.C., in the New York, in the California circle, in the London metropolitan circle, and so completely removed from the lives of everyday men and particularly women. So um, you look at the discussions and it's become much more involved in, you know, much more a concern about whether we use the word women in the language of abortion advocacy? Or do we talk about people in abortion advocacy? Well, that's really, you know, it's something that you might debate if you happen to work in an abortion organization, abortion rights organization. But when you go out there, and you actually have to talk to Mm -hmm. normal people who are not living this 100%. You have to be thinking about how you're relating to them. And, you know, people have been tweeting about Roe v. Wade that, you know, it's a good thing that we don't talk about choice, because we don't all have access to the same choices. Well, that may, you know, get you support within a particular constituency of reproductive justice advocacy. But I think actually, when you go out there and talk to people, they know that choice still matters, Mm. even if you don't have all of the choices. You know, there's been a massive fixation in DC and in New York about whether the leadership of advocacy organizations is a white is there a white supremacist organisation? Are they hoarding power? Are they refusing to move over and let people of colour take their turn? Well, you know, we have to perhaps stop obsessing about our own structures and get out there and start looking at what real people need in services. And I think this is a pivotal moment for us. Can we actually do that now?
1: I think that there's a lot of finger pointing going on, you know, which you would expect with such a a blow to um, a very fundamental aspect of um, reproductive rights. It's understandable that a lot of people are saying, "Well, why did that happen?" And it certainly, you know, a lot of people could have done a lot better, and a lot of people need to do a lot better. But the first part of it is that the anti-abortion movement really boxed very, very clever. I think they did very, very well. And they had a political party, the Republican Party, who were really listening to them and really had the ability to enact um, a lot of the hopes and desires that they had. The minute Trump was elected, people like myself in Washington, D.C. knew we were in serious trouble. And we knew that this day would come um, because Trump, Mm -hmm. unlike other Republican politicians, really planned to deliver to the anti-abortion movement. And he said so. And you sort of felt, I think he really means it. Um, And I spoke to Republican friends, even Republican friends who support Trump, who are pro-choice. And they said to me, yeah, you're pretty screwed. So there's a part of it that they delivered what they promised. Now, on the other side, you have the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party definitely delivered absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. for a long number of years. So. I was in, you know, meetings in the White House um, under the Obama administration, and we knew we were going to get absolutely nothing because Obama had, in spite of everything you want to say about him being a great guy, and um, you know, it's great to have this uh, black man in charge of the United States of America, and it's about you know equity and equality and all that. At the end of the day, he was dreadful. On reproductive rights. The post-coital contraception going over the counter, that was forced by a Republican judge in New York City against the Obama administration. So the Democrats really screwed the pro-choice movement over for years. And you could argue that many pro-choice leaders continued to back um, including uh, people saying, "Oh, we can't wait for President Biden to get in because Biden would be better than a continued Trump administration, but Biden was the guy who created the hobby lobby decision. he's the one who created the environment in the Obama administration, whereby um the they created an exception to contraception coverage under the Affordable Care Act. That they were able to drive a, a horse and four carriages through to stop people getting access to no cost contraception. So the idea, the Democratic Party, um, you know, it it's, it it really makes me angry to see them fundraising now off the back of you know, mm. give us money and we will get back Roe v Wade again. They create, they could have codified um, Roe v Wade into law on numerous occasions. They didn't do it. If if anything by not protecting Roe v. Wade, by not protecting the right to abortion, by not even saying the word abortion when they're Mm -hmm. giving their press conferences, they created a situation in which they said to the other side, hey, here you go. Here's a target. You can have it. So um, I think at the end of the day, it's really been a failure of establishment progressive politics that created this problem. And I think it will be the people who need to pull it back out of the fire, not people like the Democratic Party, who are still going to use it. On the right and the left of the Democratic Party, they're still going to use it as a political bargaining chip for their own desires, as opposed to getting back a right that women should have.
0: John is really right about that, in terms of the political failure. And I agree with him, in a sense that there's not very much use in finger pointing. But Actually, I do kind of want to finger point a little bit on this, largely because you know I'm, I'm probably in a position where I can do this. But, you know, I have seen over the last couple of years a change in the movement in the United mm. States. I've seen organisations that, God, I admire them so much. National Abortion Federation, Planned Parenthood, Federation of America. I used to describe BPAS with some humility as we were trying to be the UK version of Planned Parenthood Federation because these were organisations that had really stood up and Mm. fought for women. And then what I've seen over the last few years is a move towards this progressive sense of what they call intersectionality, which basically means is that you can't fight one issue on its own, you know, you're not a good person if you're not anti-capitalist, anti-racist, anti-poverty, the sort of justice in all of these sectors because they see everything together as being kind of lumped together. And so you can't take up abortion on its own, particularly in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. There was a big thing, what are these organisations doing about racism? Big thing, following the Me Too movement, What are these Mm. movements doing about having men in the workplace and looking at their behaviour? And what I really think happened was that, you know, there was a real sense that for organisations to be progressive, they had to get rid of men out of those movements. Some Mm. of them were very good activists. There were a lot of women that they said, you're kind of the wrong colour, you're the wrong age to Mm. be doing the fighting. And so what you've got now is a completely different leadership committed to a completely different set of politics. And all I can say is that I really hope they can deliver as well as some of those hard-bitten oldies who... um, (laughs) you know, delivered over years, maintaining late abortion in the United States because they've got the jobs now, they are the leadership. Well, I hope that they're really prepared to go for it. Because as John says, we need to take this out to the people. And it's not now going to be about winning a popularity contest about whether you're Mm. the most progressive person in your workplace. You've got to go out there and convince ordinary Texans and ordinary Dakotans that you are the people who can do the job. How Woke
2: One, the new spiked book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It is all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we as ordinary people can fight back. I cannot recommend it enough. Make sure you order your copy now. You can get it on Amazon or go to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. That's a really important point And proof of my theory that identity politics is the enemy of progressive politics in terms of constantly having this impact of undermining the great gains of the past, one of which, in my view, was the right of women to to choice and to, to govern their lives as, as they see fit. But the way in which identity politics and that fragmentary process continually has the impact of undermining those old solidarities and those old arguments, I think, is really A huge problem. And John, it actually touches on something I wanted to put to you, just following on from something Anne said earlier about that there's been a turn away from the language of choice and there's been an embrace of other ideas. I mean, reproductive justice is something that we hear quite a lot these days. And John, you described very well how the democratic establishment has not been up to scratch, to put it mildly, on the issue of choice and on the issue of Roe versus Wade. And it is actually pretty sick-making to see people like Nancy Pelosi now using the demise of Roe v. Wade as a, as a mechanism for fundraising and and gaining influence. I mean, it is just really awful that they, they seem to have been complacent because Roe existed and they seem not to have recognised that freedom needs to be refortified again and again and argued for again and again if it's going to have any substance and now it collapses and they're using it as an opportunity to to make money and to gain influence but beyond those dc failures of the political establishment there has also been a shift hasn't there in how Progressive activists argue about for abortion or for the right to abortion and move away, as Anne says, from the language of choice, which brings in the whole question of the sovereign individual, the question of conscience, the question of a person's right to govern their own life, towards reproductive justice and other forms of language, which is much softer and and also has a very top-down component that you know, uh, reproductive freedom is something that has to be delivered to these people and given to these people as a form of justice by people who are, I guess, more enlightened than them or whatever it might be. Isn't there a problem with a shift in language too, when it comes to defending the right to privacy, the right to freedom and the right of people to make choices about their own lives? In one way,
1: I sort of, you know, let A thousand flowers bloom. Like, you know, in one way, I sort of see it as being sure, let people um, argue uh, with the language and the concepts that they find most valuable for them and most adhere to their particular belief system. So, in one way, I don't mind the fact that there's different ways of arguing for the same thing. What I've found disturbing Mm. in the last couple of years is how values around enlightenment that I regard as being absolutely Mm. essential and universal. Um, When I'm in Africa or in Latin America and I talk about enlightenment values, it's not a European thing. It is a thing that they very much um, in their lives, Mm. in their communities, in their history can find um, resonance um so the idea that we've moved away from enlightenment values um, which i think um i've seen in progressive movements um over the last couple of years i think is really damaging moving away from choice moving away from defending um free speech um these you know this discarding it's not a matter of just arguing from uh, another set of values and ideas which i would to absolutely support, but it's the idea of devaluing and arguing against um, and undermining enlightenment values. I find that to be incredibly disturbing. And I think it's dangerous. I think it's something that damages because at the end of the day, you know, when you talk about choice, I think people understand that. Um, people, people resonate and understand yeah. that idea. I think that's what happened in the Republic of Ireland. I think people understood choice they mm-hmm. understood freedom of conscience. Um, and I've, I have found in the last couple of years that those ideas have been discarded, pushed aside, and indeed attacked, um, which I think is a tragedy. And I think if pro choice people, people who support abortion rights, want to win, I think they need to get back to those sort of fundamentals because I think they resonate with people who will turn around and will deliver a right to choose.
2: I really agree. And that universalism and, and plainness of language is so important when you want to win people to your cause rather than these kinds of cultural studies, queer studies, pregnant people type arguments, which I think are, can be incredibly alienating in a way that some sections of the pro choice lobby might soon discover when they, when they have to have these kinds of discussions. Um, and I want to, uh, now come on to, really the final point of the discussion, which is how we make the case for choice in the 2020s. Because that is a really huge question, I think, because so many of the things that are attendant to the right to choice, for example, the right to privacy, the understanding of people as conscious, autonomous individuals, and the notion that it's the person, him or herself, who makes a choice, who then should uh, take responsibility for that choice. So many of these fundamental ideas, uh, enlightenment ideals, as John has just said, have fallen by the wayside in recent years. So I want to talk about how we make this case right now. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Anne, This is not necessarily a finger pointing thing, although if either of you want to point fingers, please feel free. But I do want to ask you about the response to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, because one thing that has concerned me, and I fully understand that lots of American women are feeling pretty put upon at the moment and incredibly worried about very everyday things the question of um, Mm -hmm. what happens to them if they get pregnant, uh, particularly if they live in a certain state. I mean, these are not minor issues. And it's right that people feel incredibly worried and possibly even fearful about them. But when the pro-choice movement engages in a politics of fear, doesn't that become problematic? So I have seen lots of advocates for choice talking about the fact that women will die, John said earlier that he doesn't want to be a sky falling down person. And I I feel similarly to John. But I've seen Hillary Clinton on TV say, literally saying women are going to die. Uh, there's lots of focus on women who are victims of rape or incestuous relationships and the question of what happens to them if they get pregnant. And the question I want to put to you is, doesn't all of that Distract us from the question of choice and the right of a woman to decide to be unpregnant for any reason that she wants to be unpregnant? But also, doesn't the reliance on a politics of fearfulness also take away from the more positive arguments one could make about freedom and conscience?
0: I think it's quite difficult because there is absolutely no doubt about it that, you know, there's a kind of material reality about being Mm. denied abortion access that, you know, is very real and is very threatening. What I have a a problem with is that we're not really thinking through very clearly what strategy we need to really build the movement that we need to recenter that discussion about personal choice and personal autonomy and tolerance, you know, allowing people to make decisions that you wouldn't otherwise, that that you wouldn't make yourself. And I think that it it sounds very easy. We, We do it in Britain. You know, there's often this argument about no return to the back streets. And we look at what, what happened when abortion was denied in the past, or we look at what abortion is like when it's denied in very, very poor countries. And we kind of try and impose that model on what exists today. And it, it will be different now. There is travel, there is the abortion pill. As John said, mm. it's not as easy as saying we can just switch to that because there are huge problems, particularly with state intervention. But people are really inventive about getting around laws when they don't work very well for them. And in fact, one of the reasons why there was absolutely no possibility of the British state going back to the way of administering abortion pills after it relaxed regulations in the covid lockdown is because there was no way on god's earth that they could actually have carried it off and you know if you look at the whole issue of of cross state travel in the united states how can that actually be controlled if we're realistic about it you know how are you going to stop women from going across borders. How are you going to stop women bringing in pills from states where it's legal to states where it isn't? The practicalities Mm. of it, I Mm. think, you know, we may very well find that there are states that have got laws on their books that aren't actually possible for them to implement. But the crucial thing about it is going back to those arguments that a woman should be able to do with her own body what she really feels she should be able to do with, and and centering that. And you you, you say, Brendan, you know, on the kind of the need to focus on that was was brought home to me looking at one of the arguments that's now being used in sloganing you know we used to shout not the church not the state women will control their their faith which has now been shifted to fuck the church fuck the state we don't want to procreate that's mm-hmm. a different thing yeah. Get get our yeah. control back in it you know <laughs> and i think we even with the little slogan you need to do it it's about us controlling that's what it's about
2: yeah and I very much agree. And one of the things I always admired about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that she talked about control. When she talked about abortion at her hearing to, that that made her a Supreme Court justice, she didn't back down. She didn't shy away. She talked about this as is an issue of control. Do women have control over themselves or do they not? And John, I want, this is going to be a bit awkward because it's one man asking another man about Feminism, <laughs> which is never a, a good thing to do in 2022.
0: It's okay, boys. You can do
2: it. <laughs> we have permission to do so. <laughs> but, but, John, I, you, I, well. I want to ask you about the slogan, the personal is political, and whether... The, I mean, I don't want you to to analyse that 1970s slogan because it's kind of disappeared slightly or rather been in, institutionalised in various different ways. But isn't part of the problem... John, in terms of how we go forward and make the case for choice and conscience, isn't it isn't one of the problems that is the over-politicization of private life, and w- whether that's the state sticking its nose in where it's not wanted, or people voluntarily making a political statement off their personal choices in terms of their identity or their gender fluidity or, or whatever else, Do you think one of the things that we might need to do as we go forward and defend this fundamental uh, choice that women should enjoy is that we need to disentangle the public from the private and insist that there has to be a sphere of life where people can live freely and make their own choices? Absolutely. And I think uh, I
1: read something you wrote, Anne, um, just after the Roe v. Wade um, decision was made, um, or when we got an inkling that it was going to go in that direction, that the worst thing about it is that it's this erosion of the idea that you do have a personal right, you do have a personal life, and there is a boundary there. Um, And somehow with the decision, it's undermined that private sphere. Um, and I think that that is incredibly dangerous. Um, and it's, it's dangerous in all of the areas that I've mentioned, that there's many aspects of our lives that rightly or wrongly, we should be able to make decisions about because we're the ones who are most affected by them. They uh, it, it speaks to our fundamental moral values, our uh, our compass in where we should go and what we should do and the idea that the state would be involved in that in any way um, is abhorrent. Um, so I really think that that's, you know, something that's there. And it's something that really, Brendan, you know, one of the things that sort of annoyed me is all of these Europeans saying, oh, my God, it's terrible <laughs> what the Americans have done yeah. about Roe v. Wade. is not that disgusting. What a country. <laughs> my God, what are the Labour Party doing? Yeah. What are the Conservative yeah. Party yeah. doing? Do British people realize... That abortion is is still has is in the criminal sphere. We need the decriminalisation of abortion in the UK now, today. Like, why does that not happen? Why is it that I was criticising the Democratic Party? Why is it that there's no Tory who's decent enough to say that this personal sphere needs to be defended in Mm -hmm. the UK? Why the Labour Party, who seem to you know like go out and sort of look for issues? that don't um, require a solution. Why are they not dealing with a problem that UK women have or could have in the future by actually saying that, yes, this is truly a decision that really is for women in the UK in their personal lives. So don't just, that's what I mean about finger pointing that like looking at the US and saying, oh my God, how could that happen over there? In the UK, you have the same rot in political parties who refuse to recognize that the personal sphere of people's lives and enlightenment values would lead you to the conclusion that people should have the right to decide and control their lives and government should not be involved. What government can do is make a decision to get out of people's lives and give the power back to
2: people. Yeah, I think that's very well put. And that uh Anti-Americanism has always wound me up, and there's been a fair smattering of that in in some of the European response to the overturning of Roe v Wade. And you know, let's uh, I, th- I think for various reasons, the abortion debacle that's currently happening in the US will not come to the UK because of how the abortion debate takes place in America versus how it how, how it's a pretty settled discussion in the UK. But you're absolutely right, John. You know, we need to remember that. Um, Very, very recently, women in Ireland had to travel to Britain to get an abortion. Women in Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, still have to travel to other parts of the United Kingdom to get an abortion because they don't have the services. In some European countries, there are very strict time limits. In other European countries, there are moves to restrict abortion services even further. So I think we need to get off our high horse in terms of wagging the finger at the United States and actually think about how all of us can make the case for greater choice and greater freedom and greater privacy and those kind of core values of the civilised life. Okay, one more question I'm going to put to both of you. I've saved the, the most controversial question to the end, so I'm putting you both on the spot here. But I want to talk about just briefly about the language of womanhood. And Anne, you touched on this earlier in terms of the adoption of new ways of thinking and new ways of speaking among the new leaders of the pro-choice movement, I guess, who who are quite different in many ways to the old leaders. Um, I've had the privilege of meeting some of those older leaders of the pro-choice movement from the seventies and the eighties who Often are quite grizzled and really war battered, and have a very clear sense of why this is an important freedom. And there has been a shift in that leadership and a shift in the kind of language that is used. So, I want to ask both of you about the idea of pregnant people. And I'm not just asking you about this because I want you to say something controversial or problematic, in quote marks, but because. isn't it the case that if we can't talk about women and women's rights, then it becomes very difficult to defend women's rights and uh, the right to abortion, even though it pertains to far broader questions of freedom and conscience, as we've been talking about, it is a right that only a woman will need. Uh, I've always, one of the reasons I've always admired John is because he is, in my view, one of the most articulate defenders of of choice even though it, it's not a choice that he will never need, need to exercise himself. But Anne, kicking off with you, if, if we can't use the language of, of woman, womanhood, uh, and even define what a woman is, doesn't that make it more difficult from the very get-go to make the kinds of arguments that we need to be making in the next few years?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think you've, <laughs> all, I think you've answered your own question, Brent. <laughs> Really? Because I think that's true. You know, it's like someone, you only need an abortion if you're pregnant. You, you, know, you only get pregnant if you've got a womb. You have a womb if you're an adult human female. You know, that's the kind of the basics of the biology there. And um, I think that then you can look at well, why is abortion always being stigmatized? why is abortion being marginalized, and that is because it's it's a thing that has happened to women um in in the past and flown against what was always seen as the natural role of women as maternity. But, you know, th- that's the point when I say that we need to kind of get a grip on reality and pull people back to looking at how things are in the actual world rather than how they look at it, how they appear in a kind of fantasy world. And I do think it fits with... The way the you know the the movements changed, I mean you know in the past, we had leaders in the abortion rights movement who you know had led yeah. the Teamsters union. In the United States, who knew what political fighting was about. Now we have people who describe themselves, for example, as the Beyonce of abortion storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a different kind of background. So let's think about the reality. You know, um, when someone goes for an abortion, they want, need a gynecology service, and that relates to women and um, we just need to face up to it, I think.
2: Uh, And John, just to add on to that for you, John, for you you to answer that question, I I was just going to say that I remember there was an NHS poster a few years ago which showed a pregnant man and said something like, if men could get pregnant, then these kinds of rights would be better protected. Of course, now (laughs) apparently men can get pregnant. Shock, horror, who, who knew? And John, I don't want you to incriminate yourself. I have no interest whatsoever in John O'Brien being cancelled for saying something that he shouldn't say. But isn't there a problem with this, I guess, hyper-political correctness or, or, or really with the increasing restriction on our ability to use plain universal language to describe the problems that we face and the potential solutions that we might move towards? I was
1: involved in training um, the leadership in the Republic of Ireland around the repeal the eighth mm-hmm. um, campaign. So I did communications training, talking with the leaders about how they might present the arguments, both on TV, radio, in print, um, online, and also at the doorsteps. And one of the things I came across, not um, in a majority, but in a couple of people, wanted to talk differently about abortion. They wanted to say pregnant people as opposed to pregnant women. And I totally understood the reason or the motivation for it. This idea that I want to be more inclusive of trans people and you know, knock yourself out in your personal life. But when you're on a doorstep and you're explaining to somebody that we need you to vote yes rather than no, it's probably not going to go over that well that you're talking about something that your political, your own world that you live in, um, is really not the world that a lot of people are in. You need to win a vote. Um, I think, you know, the campaign understood that and moved away from the idea. The campaign deliberately moved away from that sort of language because they needed to win and they did win and they did move away from the language. So I worry about um, I, I think people, again, I believe in freedom of speech. I believe people can say whatever way they want to say it themselves. What worries me is when they start telling me how I should say it. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, the idea that eliminating the word woman is absolutely wrong. I don't think it's effective. And I think it tries to, you know, erase the very people that this most affects. So I'll always say woman. Um, I encourage other people to do so because that's what will be understood and that's the type of language and directness and honesty that actually will um, change uh, where we are today. So I'm against the idea of people indulging in sort of a self-indulgent argument or language that makes them feel better but doesn't actually deliver the type of result that we need.
2: John and Anne, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.